All right, welcome back to another episode of Baseball Acumen. I am your co-host, Brian. And I'm Katie. Katie, I got to say, this episode isn't going to be as similar as our normal episodes. Our normal episodes will be a little bit more statistics-driven, but... This topic was just so great and um, just so humorous and just had so much rich content (laughs) in it. I just, I couldn't pass it up. We had to do an episode about this. Oh, So, and I think it's especially great because I know it's something that not everyone out there is aware that has been happening over a long time. Right. It's maybe a story that's gotten a little bit of traction in the Chicago market, but maybe not further than that. And it's just so spectacularly humorous that we've got to let the masses know about (laughs) this wonderful phenomenon that's out there. And I think importantly to establish as we head into this topic is in case you don't already know, we are both diehard Cubs fans. Yes, Ride or die Cubs. But as we know, even though we live in the suburbs of Chicago, we unfortunately have to share our city with another baseball team, the White Sox. It's true. We do. And, you know, it's a thing. It is. It is. It's a tension we have to live in. There is this crosstown rivalry. Very heated. But it's okay because Chicagoans all come together for football season. So we have our (laughs) moments to unite and moments to divide, right? Right, right, right. So it's good we have both. Anyway, so Brian, can you uh, tell me, how do you personally feel about the White Sox? That's what I want to know. Yeah, (laughs) so, you know, as a Cubs fan, it's interesting. Like, I definitely do know Cubs fans who kind of fall into that sort of the equivalency of the White Sox are just as bad as the Packers or the Cardinals, right? <laughs> it's just too easy. <laughs> yeah, and and I get it. I totally do get it. But honestly, from my end of things, unless I'm talking with my friend at work, Pete, who's a diehard White Sox fan, and then we kind of, you know, we rib each other about <laughs> our respective teams. But for the most part, I'm completely indifferent. I don't pay attention to the White Sox. Mm. They're not my team. They might as well be in another city. They play in the other league. (laughs) But at the same time, there was a time when I was young, I was in second grade, and the White Sox were in the playoffs. It was 1983, and this was their first time in the playoffs for years and years and years. And my dad was born a Southsider, so he kind of has a natural affinity for the White Sox, but Mm -hmm. also likes the Cubs. So he kind of just cheers for both equally. So for that season, it was right before I really got into baseball card collecting and all that sort of thing. But I remember watching the White Sox in the playoffs and cheering for them. And then I just remember being utterly angered and disappointed because the White Sox were actually playing somewhat well in the ALCS against the Orioles Mm. and their best offensive player was this guy named Ron Kittle (laughs) and he was like their home run hitter and everything and the Orioles pitcher was this guy named Mike Flanagan and Mike Flanagan was actually really well known for how much control he had. He had really good accuracy with his pitching and in this playoff game Ron Kittle's standing there at the plate and Mike Flanagan just beans him and basically like hits him in the kneecap and it literally knocks his kneecap 
out of its socket or whatever. <laughs> it was just horrible, uh, grotesque injury and just single-handedly destroyed the White Sox offensive power with wow. that pitch. And to this day, there are White Sox fans who are just utterly angry about that because they really did have a legit chance in that season to go all the yeah. way. And mm. it felt malicious. I mean, to this day, you can read on Ron Kittle's website that he <laughs> claims that Mike Flanagan didn't miss location of a single pitch all season long. So <laughs> how did he suddenly lose control on that yeah, one pitch, right? Yeah. So given fine. that, deep down in my heart, I do wax nostalgic a little bit about having <laughs> cheered for the White Sox that one season. And my dad took us to a couple of games at Old Comiskey Park, which was mm. in those days, I don't know if it ever was a nice ballpark, but it wasn't <laughs> nice when I went there, which is obviously why yeah, they replaced it. But yeah. anyway, so, you know, but at the same time, there's like this civic pride part of me. It's like, I'm a Chicagoan. And if if the White Sox are doing well, and maybe the Cubs aren't doing as well, you know, I'll, I'll at least follow them. I'll, I'll kind of see what's going on. You know, I, my mm. heart's not in it like with the Cubs. But nevertheless, yeah, I yeah. think for me, there's some element of civic pride. It still is a Chicago team, and, and I can rest in that. How about for okay. you, Katie? What's your take on the White Sox as a Cubs fan? I've got to say, not so friendly. <laughs> I would definitely slip into the, yeah, don't like the White Sox at all. I mean, how can you be willing to completely share your city? I feel like you have to take a side. There's just no way to stand in the middle. <laughs> That's just my personal opinion, but... I can, res I can respect where you're coming from. <laughs> I would definitely echo Michael Barrett's sentiment toward the White Sox, if you remember that 2006 incident where oh, yeah. he just straight up punched AJ Brzezinski <laughs> in the face after he thought he, you know, slammed him at home. Spectacular. Knocked him out. Yeah, uh, yeah that's yep. just iconic in my mind. So oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the players don't like each other all that much. You know, it's just every time... There's some sort of rivalry that happens. So Yeah, and I can think of times in the last 10, 15 years or so that the Cubs have been right up there in the standings. They've been in in first place or near first place. And then, you know, obviously they started doing interleague play in these crosstown series. And the White Sox would come to Wrigley Field and sweep us. And it's like, oh, yeah, my exactly. Gosh. And it never makes any sense. Yeah, but it's, it's just, rivalry. And so. the White Sox were like never good that year. And right. they would come in and just destroy us for like an entire exactly, series. Exactly. It's like exactly. that. I felt that heartbreak, you know, like that, oh, that yeah. hurt, oh, you yeah. know. So I totally get where you're coming from. For me, it's definitely an up and down depending on the context sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah. So I guess one question we could ask is there's this whole aspect that sort of the White Sox live in the shadow of the Cubs. And yeah, why would that be? commonly agreed upon. <laughs> yeah. I can think of one major reason for this, and mm -hmm. this is a relatively obvious one, but it's the fact that the Cubs were on WGN and literally yeah. every game of theirs was televised on the same channel. So your local audience got 100% of the Cubs games. And right. then, of course, WGN was a nationwide cable network as well. So the mm -hmm. Cubs, unlike like the White Sox were able to get this nationwide built-in fandom because a lot of people who had cable television across 
also they could watch literally every single Cubs game, which maybe they couldn't even do for their own local team, you know? Exactly. And fun fact, that's actually the reason why my dad is a Cubs fan, because he and his the younger siblings in his family, they would be home and their older sister would babysit them and they would watch TV during the day and the Cubs were always on. He's a Southsider. And so his parents, his older siblings, oh, they were all Sox fans. <laughs> but now the little kids were sitting there watching the Cubs all day it also helped that my aunt thought that one of the players was really cute so they'd watch it all the time yep. and they became cubs fans so right there you have Sox fans going to cubs fans because of wgn yep it's the indoctrination of television uh-huh. and possibly before the wgn era maybe it was related to the black Sox scandal of <laughs> the early 20th back. century or Maybe you could talk about how the Cubs live in a traditionally more affluent side of Chicago. And so yeah, there's just yeah. more money behind them for marketing and that sort of thing. Yeah. So there's lots of possible reasons out there why yeah. maybe the Cubs have a bigger spotlight on them nationally than sure. the White Sox do. Yeah, yeah. And we even see that empirically with numbers like they get like 10,000 fans more per game on average than the White Sox. So it's just a commonly known fact. It's not just that we're very opinionated right, or right. biased. Yeah. So with all of this context now, it helps set us up for our main storyline of the day. And it turns out that there's this random sports network called ESPN. I, I might have heard of them. Maybe yeah. just once, yeah. you know, worldwide leader in sports. Anyway, yep. keep in mind, they are headquartered in Connecticut. They're on the East Coast. But they, over the past five years, have had this recent history of forgetting that there are two teams, two baseball teams in Chicago. Now, of course, we would like to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe if this happened once, maybe twice. Okay, no big deal. Happens to everybody, right? Especially people people are supposed to be leading sports. Of course. But this has happened every year over the past five years, eight different times, at least. They continue to forget that the White Sox exist, that they have done anything, that they have a history. There are just so many patterns. So first time this happens is in 2016. Now, of course, 2016 is a very important year for us Cubs fans because we all know that's when the curse was broken. It it was the greatest season in Major League Baseball history. We've Uh, said it on the show and we're going to repeat it many, many times. No debates. Yeah. So, as you know, ESPN was preparing for this huge Cubs World Series before they even knew that they were going to win. They were talking about, okay, well, let's look at Chicago and the recent championships that they've had and Cleveland because the Cubs were facing the Indians. Right. And so they had this great graphic and they showed the number of recent Cleveland championship appearances right. in any Since of the major sports. Since 1965. Since yep. 1965. They have the lone... Cavaliers. Right, title. which was the big LeBron comeback return right. to Cleveland. It was a big deal. Huge yeah, moment. Yeah. They only had but one, it. but it was huge. No Browns yeah. championships, no, 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 no Indians, no Indians. Nothing going back to 1965. Exactly. Now, on the other side, they had Chicago and they showed six Bulls titles, of course. You got three you Blackhawks titles. You can't leave out MJ. I mean, no. And absolutely. Yeah. And the not. Hawks were just dominating right. hockey. So got to have them right. in there. The Bears even had one in that time frame. That's right. 85 greatest football season right? ever. Yep. Oh, absolutely. So there's 10, right? Wrong. 
they were missing one very important championship that would have brought this total to 11 because in 2005, the Chicago White Sox not only won the World Series, but they also ended their 88-year drought. So this was an incredibly important title, and they just completely left it off. Yep. All the Chicago titles since 1965 didn't bother to include the White Sox. Yep. So yeah, ESPN completely snubs the White Sox. And so, you know, I know what you're thinking at home. You're thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was just one graphic, one oversight. Right, I promise right. you, we're about to show you multiple times <laughs> coming up here where ESPN continues to snub the White Sox year after year after year. So the graphic Katie just talked about was from 2016. Let's step ahead to the next year, 2017. All right. So again, this is similar time in the calendar year mm -hmm. because it's right leading up to the World Series, just like that previous graphic. Best time of and year. And this time, ESPN Stats and Info tweets out on their Twitter account. And of course, the World Series was heading towards Dodgers versus Astros that year. Mm. And the tweet says, quote, the Dodgers are seven and one this postseason. The 1998 Yankees are the only team in the wild card era to win the World Series with two losses or fewer. Now, Katie and I have this mutual boss, John, who is a diehard Yankees fan. And of I'm course. sure if he saw this stat, he would just be beaming in pride because, of course, the Yankees are the superior example of a World Series championship in the wild card era. I mean, Katie, they only lost two games in three of rounds course. of the playoffs. That's incredible. incredible. That's yeah. so good. But... Again, if you look at the 2005 White Sox, they got completely left out of this stat. Not only did they win the World Series with two losses or fewer, they won the World Series with only one playoff loss. They swept yeah. the Red Sox three games zero in the first round. Second round featured their one loss to the Angels. And then they swept the Houston Astros in the World Series for nothing for yeah. a playoff record of 11 and one, which in fact is the most dominant postseason in the wildcard era for a World yeah. Series champion. Not even a tie. Better. Yeah, better. Better than the Yankees. And ESPN, no mention of it. Just, just <laughs> nope. like it never happened. It's fine. And from the stats and info account, too. I just Yeah, uh, I know. It's like, seriously? Like, just look your up job. your stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Katie, that's uh, probably yeah. it. It's probably just those two, all right? right? All right. You would think. And yet, 2018 rolls around all of a sudden. We're talking about three days into 2018, right? The year's just right. started. We're in the thick of the football playoffs this time. Right. And this time we're talking about, okay, how long has it been since the Bills were in the playoffs? It's 2018. The last time they were in the playoffs was in 1999. So another solid chunk of time. So they decide to talk about in the nine and a half million minutes since the last time the Bills were in the playoffs, what has <laughs> happened? Not just 20 years, nine and a half million minutes. Yes. So they start talking about championships and they talk about Michael Phelps medals. Tiger Woods has won 12, 14 majors. LeBron joined the Cavaliers left, rejoined. Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs ended their championship droughts. Valid. All major events, yeah. right? That all happened since the last Bills that playoff game. That happened. was true. 
And yet, they mentioned the Cubs ending their playoff drought. That was crazy. You know, over 100 years. That's wild. They mentioned the Red Sox. 86-year playoff drought. That's a lot of years. That's a lot. But the White Sox ended their 88-year playoff drought in that same time, and they didn't even make the cut. The Red Sox beat them out. Not mentioned on the graphic at all. Not at all. Yep. So Uh, for some reason, it was important to mention the 86-year championship drought, but not the 88-year one because, again, got to snub the White Sox. (laughs) Who needs the White Sox? (laughs) And then, of course, a little later into that same calendar year, 2018, this time it's ESPN researcher Paul Hembekides. So he's trying to tweet his knowledge about how great a player Mike Trout is. And we all know that Mike Trout is a substantially good Major League Baseball player. Oh, yeah. So what this guy did is he compiled a list in a tweet of all-time Major League Baseball players who have had at least three top four finishes in MVP voting. So if you're voted first, second, third, or fourth place in any year, that counts as one of your tallies, right? So mm-hmm. sure enough, Mike Trout at the time of this, a couple of years ago in 2018, was at the top of the list. So he did prove his point in that sense <laughs> that Mike Trout has had more top four MVP voting finishes in his career with seven total than any other player in Major League history. Right. But then in his same tweet, he lists all the other players that Mike Trout beat out. And so previously on the list immediately below Mike Trout is Alex Rodriguez appearing on the list six times and Joe DiMaggio. I mean, I've heard of him, I think. (laughs) Also six times. And then it goes down um, Mike Schmidt with five, Lou Gehrig with five, Ken Griffey Jr. with four, etc. Oh, and let's also mention Ernie Banks with four. I mean, you got to get your cup in there. (laughs) Mr. Cub. So, and there's a handful more who also have four and three. So the implication, of course, is that up until Mike Trout came along, A-Rod and Joe DiMaggio were the two highest players who received top four in voting for the MVP award with six. Now, what ESPN here failed to do is (laughs) they failed to mention a famous White Sox first baseman by the name of Frank Thomas. And Mm -hmm. Frank Thomas brilliantly tweets back his own name with the number six after it, (laughs) which is just, I applaud that. That is, that's just so so great. Frank Thomas, six. That's all you need. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so again, there it is. Frank Thomas was literally at the top of the list before Mike Trout came (laughs) along and he completely got omitted from it Uh. by ESPN. So again, White Sox player, as if he doesn't exist at ESPN. Just, so oh my sad. gosh. A <laughs> first ballot Hall of Famer, too. I know, I know. Uh, Poor guy. How do you do but that? But you got to give him credit. He played the comeback perfectly. So Absolutely. So that good was on fabulous. him. So you would think they've learned their lesson, right? Three years so. running, definitely not going to happen to fourth. And yet, it comes time for the 2019 regular season to roll around. We're a little ways into the season. And so fans are starting to look at ESPN's batting average leaderboard, right? Yeah, I do And Tim Anderson plays for the White Sox. Incredible player. People have been noticing he's been doing incredibly well. He has the best average in the league. Let's see how other people are stacking up to him. Except then you go to their website He is nowhere to be found. Not on the list. (laughs) Not on the list. Not just in the wrong place. Not on there at all. 
And that seems suspicious, right? He should be leading. He had a batting average of 334 at the Next time that this happened. Next closest guy is 325. Like he was literally leading higher. the league substantially yes. in batting average and is not on ESPN statistics right. list for batting average leaders. Yeah. So definitely a snub against Tim Anderson, right? But Yoan Moncada should have had the fifth highest batting average at 308. He also nowhere to be found on the list. Not Jose on the Abreu list. should have been 25. Nowhere to be found. Now, this was discovered on a Thursday. It took until Sunday for any White Sox player to be in any of the leaderboards again on the ESPN stats page. Which is just spectacular. Like, how does that even happen? How do you literally admit every player from an entire team off of the major league batting average leaders list? Like, that's, I I just don't even understand it. I mean, we're starting to elevate to levels of conspiracy theory here, Katie. It's just (laughs) so ridiculous. How can Uh. you do that? So now we jump forwards to this year, 2020, and we, you know, again, think maybe ESPN has finally learned their lesson and they it's will stop. It's a short season. Yeah, How stop snubbing the White yeah. Sox. So this year on ESPN, their 30 for 30 documentary series, which there's a lot of really spectacular movies in that series oh, yeah. that I've watched. So much good stuff. But this summer, they released a documentary called Long Gone Summer about the 1998 home run chase with Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. And historically, of course, this was a season that really brought the fans back to baseball because they were very fatigued from the 1994 strike season that ended the season. Mm. And people were just kind of tired of baseball. And then all of a sudden, these two guys, rival teams in the same division, started pelting Mm. all these home runs. And it just all of a sudden just brought back baseball was the story that summer in sports. I will say, admittedly, after we got over Michael Jordan's sixth championship but (laughs) this was a couple months after that obviously because the home run race was really heating up so this documentary uh first of all just as a complete aside but i just have to while it's not the most spectacular documentary in the world the soundtrack was just (laughs) fantastic and they really could not have picked a better suited musician for it the soundtrack was all done by a guy named jeff tweedy who's the lead force behind one of my favorite bands called wilco And besides just being a great musician and just really coming up with wonderful sort of guitar-driven music cues for this documentary, he actually initially grew up in East St. Louis area in Illinois, so kind of in Cardinals Mm. land. And now his band Wilco is a Chicago-based band. So in some senses, he sort of, as a musician, he has history with both cities and could bring that experience to the soundtrack as well, which is very, very cool. So Jeff, if you're listening, which I know you're totally not, but love the soundtrack. (laughs) Great job. It was great. But anyway, the documentary then talking about this home run incident, obviously it's like, what's there to snub? We're talking mainly about a Cardinals player and a Cubs player. The White Sox didn't really even factor into that story. But Sammy Sosa had some history before he was a Chicago Cubs. The documentary actually goes to this press conference with George W. Bush, who previously was an owner of 
the Texas Rangers. And I think somebody mm-hmm. in the press, if I'm remembering the moment in the documentary correctly, asks him, what's your biggest regret in your career so far? And I think they're actually yeah. talking to him about politics. But his answer is, I regret trading Sammy Soso away. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah, it, which was a great <laughs> answer. So because, again, George W. Bush, he's been the owner for a really short time. And it's Sammy Sosa's rookie season. Sammy gets called up to the majors. George W. Bush has only been the owner for maybe like three months when Sammy joins the major league roster in June. And then six weeks later, right at the trade deadline, end of July, George W. Bush trades Sammy Sosa away. The documentary then cuts to Sammy Sosa starting his career with the Cubs. And if I didn't know better as a viewer, I would think... Uh, Yeah, George W. Bush traded Sammy Sosa away to the Cubs. But in fact, that is not what happened. He (laughs) traded him to the White Sox and Sammy had a good two and a half years playing on the south side of Chicago that the documentary literally eliminates. Not even a brief half sentence mention. It is just not there. As if the White Sox completely insignificant. Complete snub of the White Sox. Like just as if Uh, they don't exist. It's just absurd. Oh yeah. So now that we're all the way up to 2020, that's got to be the end, right, Katie? That's the last time. And yet there is still one more. So for this one, this is a very exciting season. Lots of teams made the playoffs 16 instead of the usual 10 so that was exciting but as we're going into this season there are some anomalies about it right and so this one article that they put out there was talking about should the 500 threshold be a reason to keep teams in and out of the playoffs so they're analyzing which teams actually are above 500 against teams that are above 500 so who are the best teams against legitimate playoff contenders and then which teams who made the playoffs did not do so well against teams who were over 500 right so this is an article that just came out this past week this is super recent very recent so for the first one they're talking about the teams that did really well against teams that were over 500 right so they list several teams and they're listing them by city right they get to los angeles and they say the los angeles dodgers yep they give their record against teams that are over 500. Then the last one just says Chicago, their record. So it begs the question, right? Now, given that both Chicago Cubs and White Sox made the playoffs exactly. this year, which, which Chicago, Chicago is he talking, about? talking about? Yeah, exactly. Well, we don't know. So we keep reading. And so we see which teams did the worst against teams that were over 500. And we're coming across, they're listing some other cities. We get to Chicago. This time it says White Sox. Chicago White Sox. Thus implying that when they say just plain old Chicago, it implies that it is the Cubs. Obviously that they are means about. the Cubs. <laughs> the obviously superior team. It's just so, so that ridiculous. just shows yep. that ESPN, when they say Chicago, They assume Cubs. They completely snub the White Sox every single time. Every single time. It's crazy. So those are just some of the incidents we came up with. But now that you, the listener, knows about this trend about how ESPN snubs the White Sox, and here we are, the playoffs are just beginning, and both the Cubs and White Sox made it into the playoffs this year. It's just a particularly important moment that... It's just ripe for another snub 
clubbing oh, yeah. coming up anytime soon. So we are on the edge yeah, of our seats. So、waiting. keep your ears open and just look for because it's gonna happen again. That next time that ESPN snubs the White Sox. So that's it、oh, for us、yeah. for this episode. I'm Brian. I'm Katie. And you're listening to Baseball, Baseball Acumen. Acumen.